Welcome in to the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman, and I hope you are leaping into your weekend as enthusiastically, but just a bit more responsibly than the Green Bay field goal team. We got a jam-packed week four show for y'all. Greg Olson's going to drop by to talk Cowboys Pats. We're going to talk some Bengals Titans. We're going to preview all of the NFC East games. We're going to get into everything in a very, very busy week four schedule. But what better place to start than Lambeau Field than Thursday night football? And I bring up the field goal team for a very obvious reason. I think years from now, that's what we're going to remember when we think about this Detroit Lions 34 to 20 win against their rival, the Green Bay Packers. We're going to think like, oh, that was the game where Quay Walker jumped over the line and incurred the penalty that cost the Packers the shot at this comeback. If you weren't watching Thursday night, or even if you just want to relive the craziness of it all, it looks like the Packers are on the verge of a rally. They've cut the score to 27-17 after getting bludgeoned throughout the first half. This looks like a very classic Lions scenario where the Packers come back to break their hearts. The Lions line up to kick a field goal that would have made it a, a 30 to 17 game, eight minutes to play all the time in the world for Jordan love to build his legend. And then Quay Walker jumps over the line. The lions keep the ball. They move it half the distance to the goal. Few plays later, Detroit punches it in and it's 34 17 instead. Okay. I just talked a lot about this because I do think it is something that will stick in the mind. This is the second time Quay Walker has run afoul of the referees in a Packers lions game last year. He got tossed for shoving a trainer. So clearly this is something that people will remember, but having said all of that, having talked about this entire situation, that's not what you should remember when we think about this game. If anything, when you think back on this and, and I don't know, I don't know where the lions season is going for sure. But when you think about this, the story should be, about a Dan Campbell Lions team that absolutely looks like the group that he envisioned when he took the job. Like we got so much oxygen, so much talking out of Dan Campbell saying, we're going to bite your kneecaps off. And damn, if a few years later, this team isn't exactly that. Detroit Lions go up to Lambeau Field, which has just been a nightmare for them for all of recent history. They win this game by two touchdowns with the last two wins at the end of last season. And early in this season, they're only 15, 36 and three all time at Lambeau field. And I believe this is just their fifth win at Lambeau in the last 30 years. They play there every year. Y'all going to Lambeau field has been um, like you, you just chalk it up as a loss from the minute the schedules announced every year. That's what it's like to be a Detroit lions fan. And this team went up there and they really dictated this game from beginning to end. Yeah. The Packers made it a little bit scarier than, than they might have because this was a 27 to three beat down at halftime, 280 yards of offense for the lions to 21 for green Bay. Jordan love looked completely lost. Jared Goff looked fantastic. All of the guys we've gotten used to contributing for the lions, whether it's Sam Laporta whether it's Amon Ross St. Brown, whether it's David Montgomery doing his thing, this offensive line making everybody look great. Sure, the Packers rally, but the point is that this isn't the same old Lions because they foot, put their foot back down on the gas as soon as it got dicey. I don't know if we see that from previous iterations of the Lions team. Remember, as, as hot as this team got last year, they were way under 500 at the midpoint of the season. And all that talk throughout the offseason about how can you follow it up? What they've done so far, they've gone on the road to beat the defending champion Chiefs, and they've gone to Lambeau Field where they never win and won a second consecutive game there. Actually, I think a third and a fourth consecutive game against the Packers. Not calling the Packers world beaters. Clearly, this is a young team that's got a lot to learn. Packers looked completely lost for the first 30 minutes of this game. But it matters. It matters for the Detroit Lions to do something like this, regardless of how good the Packers are. And especially, I loved the way that they wrapped this thing up. Again, the Packers cut it to a 10-point game with a lot of time to play. The Lions could have folded. A less veteran, a less savvy, a less bold team 
could have turned this into a much scarier affair. The Lions get the ball back immediately after the Packers make it a 10 point game. They go 14 plays, 75 yards. They take nine minutes off the clock. So not only do they score, but they eliminate the, the time element that's going to make this thing dicey. Jared Goff goes three for three for 40 yards on the drive. Then after the Quay Walker penalty, they pound it down to the goal line. It goes to fourth and goal. And again, we talk so much about, oh, the Lions are aggressive. They're so bold. They'll go for it on fourth down. And sure enough, they do. Because at that point, a field goal still only puts them up two scores. And Dan Campbell says, nah, give it to David Montgomery one more time. Get him a third tutty on the night. And they put this thing away by going up three scores. They wind up winning by 14. But from that point, what Montgomery scores that touchdown with six minutes to play in the game. And and from that point, that's basically all she wrote. I thought it was so, so impressive to a kick ass the way that they did. Cause the first half was about as lopsided as you've ever seen a Packer game at Lambeau field, whether Aaron Rodgers was there or not. Very few of us have seen anything like it in the last 30 plus years. Very rarely they move the ball at will. The offense looks amazing. The defense is feisty when it needs to. This is a second consecutive game that the Lions pass rush has looked awesome. And yes, the Packers offensive line incredibly compromised by injury. They find out today that David Bakhtiari is going on injured reserve. He might not be back this season. So yes, this is a Packers team with a lot of problems, but even Packers teams with problems have typically been able to count on beating the Detroit lions. That's clearly not the case in Detroit this year. We'll see how far they can carry it, but man, I think it's impressive the way that this team scraps and lives up to that, that ethos that Dan Campbell has been trying so hard to instill. They get a convincing win at Lambeau field, an impressive win at Lambeau field. And, and I, I I'm just impressed lions fans. So don't, don't let the goofiness of the Quay Walker penalty take anything away from you. This was a, as far as the Detroit lions go, even if the Packers don't win another game, this was a meaningful win at Lambeau field. I thought it was awesome. Good on you lions. All right, let's jump into the rest of these week four games and what better place to start than America's game of the week right here on Fox. And what could be a better America's game of the week than the game featuring America's team against the team literally named after America. It's the Cowboys and the Patriots. It's an extravaganza going down in Arlington, Texas. Absolutely can't wait. And I'm even more excited to bring in the NFL on Fox's own Greg Olson to help me break it all down. All right, Greg, week four, Patriots traveling to visit the Dallas Cowboys. I, I think I've seen a former president at a Cowboy game. I think Jay-Z and Beyonce stopped by one time. I, I thought a Cowboy game was where you go to see people, but I just I don't know if you're going to follow this week up uh, after after Taylor Swift dropped by Arrowhead last week. I don't know if you can top that this time around. Yeah, I don't. I, I agree. I don't think we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get anything like that this week. That was a pretty pretty unique situation, and and thankfully for for all of us involved, uh, thankfully she was there because we had a little fun with it. It, it brought a little life to what otherwise was a pretty uh, one sided affair with Kansas City jumping all over Chicago pretty early in that one. So it was uh, it was it was a fun day. It was a different story. It was it was um, it kind of saved save the what otherwise was a pretty dreadful football game. So it was fun, and we'll see what this week has in store. The NFL always has a surprise. I was say, I shouldn't speak too soon because who knows? Yeah, like when we did this last week, I had no idea it was coming. But I don't think you need to worry about the football aspect of this matchup. Two really good defenses, two offenses that are kind of trying to find their identity. And that's actually the first thing I wanted to ask you. The, the the old adage, the thing we love to say about a Bill Belichick defense is that they're gonna they're gonna make you win with one hand tied behind your back. They're gonna take away what you like to do the most. I don't really know what the Cowboys like to do the most through three weeks. I just you know I don't I don't see the offensive identity with this team. And I was hoping for an assist of just if Bill Belichick's trying to hinder the Cowboys, what do you think he targets in this matchup? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think first and foremost, a big element that the Cowboys need to figure out is, are they going to be healthy up front? I think 
missing, you know, Biotish and, and, um, you know, Zach Martin and then, you know, Tyron Smith being a late scratch. He was dressed, but he didn't end up playing actually last week um, due to leg injury. So I think missing those three starters on the offensive line, of course, can change things pretty dramatic, dramatically. So I think that's first and foremost. Are the Cowboys going to be healthy up front? I think what that allows Mike McCarthy and Dak Prescott to do and operate within the offense obviously changes, but just based on, you know, especially what we saw last week, you know, Dallas versus Arizona and that upset loss. I think the biggest thing that they need to figure out is how are they going to finish some of these long drives with touchdowns? I think that the red zone offense is obviously the big story. It's everything you read about Dallas. It's they put together these long 10, 12 plus play drives and because they don't really have the ability right now, or they're not trying to do it, whichever one of pushing the ball downfield, there's not a real explosive element to their passing game. So as a result, it's ball control, it's mix of run, it's mix of short control passing game. And they kind of methodically moved the ball down the field. And then they kind of fell flat. They had the two fourth down failures, and then they settled for a couple of field goals. So I think that's really the, the part that they're struggling is how do we capitalize and finish these drives with touchdowns. So if you're Bill Belichick, I think what you want to do is I think you want to get up and challenge them. I think you want to take away those short throws. No one plays more man coverage around the league the last couple of years than, than New England. Get up, challenge the receivers, get in their face, make Dak hold the ball. Because if that offensive line is playing a bunch of backups and they're still without those starters, this front for New England can get after the passer. They're big, they're physical, they can rush. So I think if I'm if I'm Bill Belichick, which I'm not, but if I was, I think that's what I would try to do is, you know, the style that the Dallas is trying to play ball control. Very don't protect it. Don't turn it over. I'm getting up in their face. I'm challenging them. I'm daring them to throw the ball down the field. Um, and that's where their defense is as opportunistic as any in the league. Speaking of that, I mean, it, you know, it looks like Bill Belichick's got a heck of a new tool to use uh, for this defense, and that's Christian Gonzalez. I didn't realize until I, you know, I, I just didn't think about it until I started previewing this game how many top flight receivers this kid's had to go against in his first three weeks in the league. First round pick out of Oregon. Welcome to the NFL. You get A.J. Brown, you get Devontae Smith, you get Tyree Kill and Jalen Waddle, and oh, Garrett Wilson, by the way. So, I have a feeling C.D. Lamb's probably not going to intimidate him more than anybody else. I am curious if you have a feel for for how the Patriots might use him. Is he a guy that can go into the slot with Lamb and uh, and just how Bill Belichick might want to use him uh, in this defensive game plan? Well, I, I think that's the key, and I think that's the part that we're going to try to lay out there early in the broadcast on Sunday is, you know, so traditionally when you're covering the other team's top you know, wide receiver, you know, the Justin Jeffersons of the world and what – they spend most of their time on the outside. You know, obviously, you know, certain guys come into the slot, but CD lamb for the most part operates virtually exclusively from the slot receiver from the inside, you know, number two or the number three. So I think a big element they have to realize is a, how comfortable is Christian Gonzalez being inside? You know, a lot of young players, you know, they want to teach them either one or the other, at least early in their careers. How comfortable is he playing in the slot? If he is, okay, then then you feel okay, match coverage, just play man, and it is what it is. If they don't like him in the slot, then the question becomes, okay, he's outside, he's on Gallup, he's on whoever. Now we got to find out who does match him. If they do want to play man and get up and challenge the receivers, who do they feel is their next best cover guy to match up in the slot with C.D. Lamb? So I, I think you're spot on. I think that's a – on paper, that's the matchup. You would assume you just put him – you put Gonzalez on C.D. Lamb and say, okay – but it's how comfortable are they with the young rookie, you know, four weeks into the season on one play, you're out wide on one play, you're in the slot, then it's zone. Are you able to play zone match from the nickel position? That's a very different, that's a very different animal there. So I'll be, um, that's something that we kind of have highlighted as a matchup to watch and we'll see how it plays out. Other side of the ball, Patriots looked really good in week one against the Eagles, but it's it's kind of been slow going offensively these last two games. They've they've got to be really encouraged by what they saw Arizona do uh, out in out in the desert last week. I am curious for your thoughts. Um, is that is that something the Patriots can hope to replicate? I mean, two hundred yards in, in the NFL on the ground is not easy to do, or or is that more a case of of maybe Dallas just wasn't ready for what the Cardinals were going to throw at them? 
You know, I, I, I think the easy answer is absolutely. I think we saw him do it last week against the Jets. Um, you know, they, they know the Jets can rush the passer. They know they have some really good guys up front that they wanted to keep out of the game and they didn't want to find themselves in a million third and longs, right? I think the different element last week that New England was facing was I think they had a ton of confidence that for the most part, their defense was going to be able to hold the Jets to relatively, you know, a, a very few amount of points. You know, I, I don't think they felt that there was a huge threat offensively by New York that would make them get out of that style of play. So they could kind of sit on the ball, run the clock, win a low scoring game, you know, knowing their defense pretty much had the game, you know, in control for the most part. So I think this week's a little bit different. I think obviously there's a lot more firepower with Dallas. So if New England's defense can hold them down, keep them tight, it then allows the New England offense to play a complementary style of ball. I think the other aspect that was a little different last week with Arizona, you know, just watching them was the quarterback runs or the first, you know, first possession of the game. I think it was like the second or third play. They bust along, you know, kind of zone read out the backside for 50 yards. So I think sometimes the stats can be a little skewed because when the runner, when the quarterback is a runner, both designed and scramble, it kind of inflates those numbers a little bit. Obviously, that's not what New England's going to be doing run game. But do I think they're going to go big? Do I think they'll go three tight ends, multiple tight ends, fullback, and really run at these pass rushers, run at Micah Parsons, run run at this defensive line that is a very good must pass, rush the passer. That's what they're built for. Um, absolutely. I think that's going to be definitely part of the game plan. I think, again, like last week, they do not want to make a living being in third and long, third and pass, playing from behind, playing catch up, chasing points in the fourth quarter. That as of now, that is not, you know, pass protection wise, the passing game threats on the, that's not been the formula of what New England wants to be. Um, so I think the defense plays a big role in keeping them within their game plan. And also, I, I think the more they can run at them and control it, um, it keeps those pass rushers from doing what they do best. One more before I get you out of here, and I'm sure this is something y'all are absolutely going to touch on the broadcast, but it is uh, it is a chance for Ezekiel Elliott to go back to Dallas for the first time since he since he left, since he was released by the team. He's with New England now. I'm curious from your perspective, maybe not quite the same circumstances, but I know you know you went back to Chicago a couple of times after you got to Carolina. As a player, you know, what's what's that like? What's it like being in that position where, uh, you know, Zeke is going to be playing at AT&T Stadium from the other sideline, from the other locker room? Just kind of what what's that experience like from a player's perspective? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure he's going to have some mixed emotions. As you said, I went back to Chicago my first year after I got traded. First, you know, my first year in 2011, we went back there when I was in Carolina. And, you know, you, you feel like you were just there, right? But you're on the other sideline, the other locker room, the other tunnel. Um, it's it's definitely mixed emotions. It's a weird feeling, you know, for so long you're on one side and then you experience the stadium and the game day, but, you know, obviously from the other vantage point. So I think for a guy like Zeke that had a lot of success, obviously was a big star, a big name, a big part of that that franchise for, I think it was what, seven years or however long he was there. It's pretty, it's going to be, I think, uh, I think it's going to be a, a, a pretty emotional day for him. I'm sure the fans will be excited to see him. Uh, he played well last week. He ran the ball well, had some, you know, was pretty effective, you know, on the ground against against New York. So I, I know he's going to be looking to uh, get in the end zone. I, I can only imagine what he's got in store if he ends up scoring. Uh, I don't think there'll be the Salvation Army bucket this soon. Uh, I think that's probably uh, a little later in the year. But uh, if there was one, I'm sure he'd find himself in it. That's that's a missed opportunity not to have the bucket. But, yeah, the first, uh, the first feed oh, yeah. that he gets will be – that'll be fun. Greg, appreciate the time so much, man. Enjoy the call. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. See ya. Greg's calling the game, so he won't be picking it, but I will. I can't say I feel good about this. Cowboys laid a massive egg last week against Arizona. They're going to regret that. Dropping a game in conference has a way of affecting tiebreakers and things like that. That's a loss that's going to sting for a long time. I trust them to bounce back, though. I trust that the defense isn't actually that bad, even without Trayvon Diggs. And I trust that the offense will be more effective in the red zone. They get to the red zone more often than anyone. They just got to score a couple more touchdowns. It won't be easy against the Bill Belichick defense with this much talent, but give me the Cowboys by a score of like 24 to 20. I think they'll get the job done. All right, let's move over to the arguably 
most anticipated, most electric matchup on this schedule. It's very rare to get such a heavyweight bout so early in the season. Miami making the trip up to Buffalo. It's been a house of horrors for the Dolphins recently. One win in the last 10 tries. Calling this the DVOA Bowl. The number one team in the league in DVOA, Miami. The number two team, Buffalo. Essentially what that means, DVOA measures your offensive and defensive efficiency. How efficient you are moving the ball and scoring points. How efficient you are at doing it, stopping people from scoring points. These are the best two teams in the league. For Miami, obviously, the offense is is doing a lot of the heavy lifting there. This is clearly the most exciting, most explosive offense in the NFL. They scored 70 points last week. Defense definitely isn't bad. 20, 21st in the league, and on top of that, when you score 70 points in a game, are you really paying attention to what the defense is doing in the fourth quarter of a blowout like that? Like, Forgive me if I'm not worried about yards and points being scored by Denver when they're down 66 to... 13, 63 to 13, whatever the score of that game was. Point being, this is an incredibly effective offense. They are running the ball amazingly. They've got Tyreek Hill. They did that last week without Jalen Waddle, by the way. It sounds like he's going to be back. Buffalo, a much more balanced team, only fifth overall in the league in offensive efficiency, but second on defense. The defense, honestly, is the story in Buffalo to this point. We know all about Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs. But I personally had a ton of questions about Buffalo's defense coming into this season. Von Miller is still unavailable due to injury. They lost Tremaine Edmonds, their middle linebacker to free agency, the center of that defense. The secondary, great players, but guys like Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, Tredavious White, they're all getting older by NFL standards, and they've all battled injuries recently. They've been fantastic. They're allowing less than 10 points a game. They haven't allowed an opposing offense to score more than 16. Remember, the game-losing touchdown the Bills allowed to New York in week one was a punt return, so that doesn't even go against your defense. They've been lights out. They allowed 10 to Las Vegas a couple weeks ago. They allowed just three to a Washington offense that, that was getting a lot of hype last week, and as we've talked about, that was the saddest little end-of-game field goal by Ron Rivera just to avoid the shutout. They racked up nine sacks on Sam Howell. They picked him off four times. These guys are humming. The pass rush looks pretty good considering Vaughn's not there. All those young draft picks like Gregory Rousseau, AJ Epinesa chipping in on things. You got Ed Oliver making life miserable for people in the middle. I can't wait to see them go against the Miami offense. No no disrespect to Josh Allen. We all know what he can do, and he's going to play a big part in this game. But how can you not be pumped to see a top three defense go against this incredible Miami offense? For me in particular, if you want to get nerdy with it, I want to watch the linebacker matchup against Miami's running game. If you go back and watch that game against Denver, Miami had the Broncos linebackers discombobulated. They were biting off of every play fake, every jet action, every motion before the snap. They didn't know where the ball was going. And by the time Raheem Mostert and Devon Achan got where they were going, it was too late. Well, this is a different beast in Buffalo. Matt Milano's an all pro, one of the better linebackers in football. And how about the young kid, Terrell Bernard, the draft pick from a couple years ago, Really, really impressive. Had two sacks last week, had seven tackles. He's he's really stepped into the hole that Tremaine Edmonds left. I think confusing these guys is going to be a hell of a lot harder than it was last week. Or if they're not up to the challenge, it could be another fantastic day for the Miami running game. Oh, and did I mention the Bills are going to have to find a way to deal with Jalen Waddell and Tyreek Hill on top of all of that? I think Josh Allen will score some points. But how well Buffalo handles Miami's offense is going to be the the storyline coming out of this game. And for my money, I think the Bills are up to it. I think, yes, look, the Dolphins were my pick to get to the Super Bowl. So don't call me a hater. But I think the Bills have been here and done this. I think the game is in Buffalo where the Bills play very well. And clearly the Dolphins don't, judging by their recent track record. I think the Bills, like I just said, I think Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, the Bills running game has been clicking at a level that we haven't seen in a little while. 
I think the Bills can get to the high 20s or maybe even the low 30s, and I think they'll make just enough plays to slow this Dolphins offense down. Remember, New England held Miami to 24 points just a couple weeks ago, so we're, it's easy to fall victim to the moment and assume that everyone in the world is going to give up 50 points to the Dolphins, but that's just not how the NFL works. I think the Bills are equipped to slow Miami down, not shut them down, but slow them down. And I think the Bills can win a 31 to 28 type of game. I hope it's as good as it sounds on paper. Really, really exciting stuff. I'm looking forward to it, but I am backing the Bills to get the first win in this series for this season. We'll see how it goes. I touched on the commanders a little bit in that preview of the Bills because they got their lunch money taken by Buffalo in week three. And it's not getting any easier for Washington in week four. Fresh off of an opportunity really missed against the Bills, the commanders turn right back around and have another game against one of the NFL's elite. They travel right up the interstate this weekend to the link to take on their division rival, the Philadelphia Eagles. To preview that matchup, I'm talking to our own NFC East writer, Fox Sports' Ralph Vacchiano. We're going to talk Eagles commanders. We're also going to do a little around the NFC East Giants on Monday Night Football. Maybe a little Micah Parsons talk. Check it out. All right, Ralph, it's obviously one of the subjects of the week. We talked about it earlier this week on the pod with Peter Schrager. It's, I'm calling it the brotherly shove. That's what I prefer to call it. I think it's a better name. Come on. You don't like the tush push? I'm stealing this from Peter, but like tush is just such an unfilly word. It's just, I've been to South Philly where the link is and ain't nobody down there (laughs) saying tush. I just don't see it. I like brotherly shove. Um, But I'm curious. Obviously, it's the talk of the week because the Eagles were doing it a lot on Monday Night Football. They're going against the commander's team now who... It's interesting because, A, the Commanders are one of the only teams that's been able to beat these guys when they're at full strength. It's basically the Commanders and the Chiefs. Those are the only teams that have done it in recent memory. But at the same time, this Commanders defense is really struggling against the run, which, brotherly shove or not, that is Philly's calling card through the first three weeks of the season. So how do you see that going in the trenches between this Commanders front and the Philly running game? Yeah, I, I think they're struggling against the run for a couple of reasons. Um, one is uh, Josh Allen ran all over them in the last game, and they just had a lot of trouble containing him when they got their pass rush going. Um, you know, They just could not clog those lanes. Uh, the other thing is their linebacking core is a weak spot of their defense. So once guys do get through, they have trouble stopping them. But that front line is still the strength of the commander's defense. And if you're talking about the brotherly shove or tush-push or whatever you want to call it, you know, that's they're the kind of team that would give the Eagles a lot of trouble with that because you're going to do that right against Deron Payne and right against Jonathan Allen. And, you know, the, the key to stopping that, obviously, there's no secret. It's not really about the push. It's about the surge of that offensive line in the middle and the fact that Jalen Hurts, push or no push, is so strong to be able to get through. If you can clog that lane, then you can stop it. So they're the type of team that can do that. Uh, you know, whether they can stop uh, DeAndre Swift and Jalen Hurts from running, uh, you know, that's a- another story entirely. Because like I said, they do have a weakness in tackling in the back end, and they definitely do have trouble containing the quarterback. And Jalen Hurts hasn't run very well so far this season, but this would be the kind of game where maybe he can sort of break out and, and get into a groove. Yeah, I just, I expect the Eagles to ride that until somebody shows that they shouldn't not just the shove, but, but the running game in general, I mean, what Deandre Swift is doing so far this season, and I get how amazing the offensive line is. I don't care. We didn't see this type of production from miles Sanders or, or really anybody, any of these backs. I'm curious, is it just purely his explosiveness that's led to this start? And I mean, it's crazy to, to think even two weeks ago, he barely touched the ball against new England in week one. So what is it other than the opportunity presented by injury that allowed DeAndre Swift to kind of break out to this type of start? I, I think a lot of its ability. I mean, you know, they raved about this guy when they got him from Detroit. And, you know, Detroit, I think, always underused him and misused him a little bit. Anytime I saw him actually get an opportunity, he would just run through defenses like crazy. But he was never, he had injury problems as well while he was there, but he never really got that full workload to be that kind of feature back. And the Eagles raved about what he could do. 
And then in week one, they didn't use him, which was just nuts. I don't know whether it's their love of Kenneth Gainwell or if they, they felt like he had been there, they owed it to him, whatever it was. It was clearly a mistake. The running game stunk. And as soon as they started giving DeAndre Swift the ball, it broke out. Uh, you know, obviously the offensive line has a lot to do with that, but you know, he gets through that offensive line and he can make people miss. He is just, he's so shifty, so quick with his runs. Um, you know, I think that as long as he can stay healthy, you're seeing what DeAndre Swift should have been uh, all along in his career in Detroit. He is really that good, that hard to tackle. And now that he's got a powerful offensive line backing him and good health at the moment, uh, you know, he's looking like one of the best running backs in the league. Clearly, the decision makers in Philly know what they're doing, but DeAndre Swift, two touches in a rainstorm in week one is just, it looks weirder and weirder by the week. So, yeah. Uh, thankfully for them, they figured that out. I'm curious on the other side of the ball, two things I have about the commanders and they're both turnover related. Number one, turnovers are what won the commanders. One of these games last year when they were able to upset the Eagles, I see, you know, the commanders have been able to take the ball away five on the season, pretty solid numbers, puts them right in the middle of the pack. But are you seeing that ability from these guys to take the ball away in bunches the way that I would expect they need to, to get this win? Well, you certainly didn't see that against the Buffalo Bills. Um, you know, they, they, I think they showed it in the first two games. They also showed an ability to get to the quarterback and rattle the quarterback a little bit. I think that that's a big reason why they won those games. That and, and Sam Howell playing well enough. He wasn't great, uh, but he was certainly well enough to not give the game away, to move the offense a little bit. Uh, but that defense, I think, kind of carried them. That was a big step back against Buffalo, and it's it's one of those games that it's really hard to read because was the defense struggling or were they struggling because Sam Howell threw four interceptions and they kept, you know, getting sent back out onto the field. Uh, you know, for them, I think it's a game that they just throw out and they hope it wasn't their regular performance. But yeah, I, I do think they have this year the ability to take the ball away in bunches. They have those guys in the secondary. They have those guys up front to create a lot of havoc. I think they will even more as the season goes along. Um, you know, again, whether they can do that against the Eagles, you're talking about the best defense, uh, best offensive line in football, some great receivers who know about getting open, a lot of weapons. It's probably the the team that's hardest to take the ball away from. But, uh, you know, that's the way the commanders are built. They think they can disrupt a lot of quarterbacks and, uh, you know, get a lot of turnovers. And that's how they're going to win some games. So the, the flip side of that was obviously going to be Sam Howell. And you just touched on it of how, I mean, the, the Washington offense put the, their defense in a, in a horrible spot last Sunday. It was, it's a measuring stick game. You get a chance to go up against an elite team. And I don't know if it would be possible to come up shorter than what Washington did. I mean, they allowed nine sacks. They turned the ball over five times as good as Howell looked in the, in particularly in week two against Denver, that's how bad he looked going against a real heavyweight. I mean, is is this a burn the tape situation? Should they just try to forget that happened? Or or how do you move past that going against another team that that is really, really high caliber in Philly? Yeah, I mean, I'd burn the tape. Um, I, I think that that's sort of the instinct there. Not that they're not going to look at it and learn from it, but I don't think you get too carried away with it because, you know, Ron Rivera said this and I said it to anybody that would listen going into the season. This is going to happen with young quarterbacks. Every young quarterback in history has games like that early on. Their first seasons as a starter, I know it's his second year, but it's his first full season as a starter. It's going to be up and down. He's going to have to ride that roller coaster. There's going to be a couple of games this season that he's going to win on his own and stun everybody, and a couple of games like that where he's just going to throw it away. And early on in the season against a defense like that, when he's still processing everything and trying to make quick decisions and figure out where to go with the ball, and all of a sudden that defense is coming at him, I can see where he threw the ball away a little bit. And then he starts to press a little bit because that's what young quarterbacks will do. So it all just fed on top of itself. And, you know, again, it, it is something that they knew was going to happen at some point. Hopefully it won't happen often. Unfortunately for him, he's going up against a great defense again one week later. It's going to be really interesting to me to see how he's learned from that. Is he going to look like the rattled quarterback again um, that he was in Buffalo? Or is he going to learn, you know, okay, there's things I can do uh, to sort of minimize the mistakes and, you know, ways I can process things a little bit better. Uh, how he comes out in this game is not going to tell me a ton about the quarterback he's going to be, but it's going to tell me 
how quickly he's going to get there. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think I'm I'm not expecting him to light the world on fire with uh, Jalen Carter and and Hassan Reddick and all those guys bearing down on him. But if we can at least play a less reckless game in these circumstances, I think that would go a long way. I do want to touch on there, there's some other action happening in the NFC East. Obviously, actually, shockingly enough. Eagles commanders is only the second division game of the year. Interesting all in its own right. But on Monday night, I apologize in advance to giants fans, but I was, I was fairly surprised to look at this and see how even the line is for New York against Seattle. Is that a component of New York's offense rounding back into decent health? At least it looks like Saquon Barkley is going to play in this game. Hopefully the Giants offensive line is a little more put together. What's what's the reasoning for this? Because from a more outside perspective, I would expect to have the Seahawks favored even, even as a road team. Yeah, I'm a little surprised by that line myself. And if I were a betting man, I might be looking at the Seahawks pretty strongly in this game. I'm sure some of it is, um, you know, teams making cross-country trips don't often travel well. I don't know what the Seahawks record is doing that, but that maybe that factors in. I guess people are looking at the health of the Giants offense, but look, they were healthy at some points this season and they still weren't very good. Uh, I think about 50% of their offense, their yards, their more than that of their points came in the second half against Arizona in the other 10 quarters. They have absolutely stunk whether Andrew Thomas or Saquon Barkley have been out there or not. So um, I don't know what people are based on it. They think that suddenly those two guys coming back and it's going to be a miracle and they're going to be look like that team in the second half of Arizona. I don't know that they are that team. I, I need to see it. I need to see more. Uh, so to me, you know, if they get these guys back, it is a big test for me. Can they, you know, this isn't the 49ers defense uh, that they're going to be facing. It's not the Cowboys defense they're facing. So, you know, can they come out and start to sustain some drives? Let's not just do it in a two-quarter stretch. We'll do it over an entire game. Uh, can they develop the passing game that we were told was there with you know Darren Waller being a, a big weapon and with Jalen Hyatt, the rookie, being a downfield threat? Uh, there's so much that they still have to prove that you know three games in, I'm wondering you know can they can they be that team that they thought they were going to be? Because again, I'm not two quarter two great quarters against Arizona doesn't sell me on anything. Uh, you know, they've got a lot to show before I would start putting my money on them. It's uh, it's a fun little subplot of this season. The narrative on the Giants heading in was, are you for real? Can you replicate that success? And three of their first four games are standalone national TV games. So, yeah, I, I hope for their sake, it's a better showing than what we saw in week one and week three. But we will see one last thing I wanted to get you uh, get your thoughts on. I know you're working on something about Micah Parsons. Just was named uh, NFC September Defensive Player of the Month for September. Obviously off to an amazing start. You're up in the New York area. It's funny, as a guy who's covered the Cowboys, you started to hear the Lawrence Taylor comparisons even when he was a rookie, and there was a lot of pushback, understandably so. But it seems like here in, in year three, it, it it's not as far-fetched as it might have been. What, what are your thoughts on that, having done some research on it? Yeah, it's crazy. And I got a story on that running on FoxSports.com on Sunday on, you know, are the comparisons for real and fair? Because, you know, I, I grew up in New York watching the the Lawrence Taylor Giants. I know a lot of those guys. I covered Lawrence Taylor's final season with the Giants way back early in my career. And anytime I hear, oh, he's the next LT, I cringe because my first instinct is you're forgetting how great this guy was. You're talking about arguably one of the five best NFL players at any position and probably the best defensive player of all time. And he just changed the way offense will play guys and, and the way you know teams will play their linebackers because he was just that good. So I think uh, that's crazy. It's premature. But you know, I've talked to a few people who played with and played against Lawrence Taylor. And, you know, we even heard from Bill Belichick talking about uh, the comparisons and Nobody's exactly hiding from this anymore. No one's saying it's ridiculous. Some people will say it's premature. Um, you know, I've, I've heard that it's unfair. I talked with Carl Banks, a teammate of Lawrence Taylor, who said, you know, that you, you know it's hard to, it's not really fair to the kid to compare him against one of the greatest of all time. But they all have a but, and they say, look, you know, it's as close as anybody's come to him. He is that great. He is on a path now 
to be one of the top defensive players of all time. So um, it's not as ridiculous as I thought, which surprised me. I just figured that everybody would back away from it. But I, I think, you know, Micah Parsons may not be Lawrence Taylor yet, but I think he's getting to be closer than any defensive player that maybe I've seen in my lifetime. I think what really swayed me was obviously it's it's Cowboys Patriots. Bill Belichick has been talking about the Cowboys all week and Belichick's not going to put anybody alongside Lawrence Taylor or ahead of him. But when Belichick said, you know, it's a talent level along the lines of Lawrence Taylor, that really opened my eyes of like, okay, if Bill Belichick's not even offended about having their names in the same sentence, that carries a lot of weight for me. Ralph, I can't wait to read the story. Check that out on Sunday, foxsports.com, the Fox Sports app, wherever you get our content. I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. My pleasure, David. Anytime. Let's take it down to Nashville, where the pressure is not off the Cincinnati Bengals, not even by a little bit. Bengals traveling down to Tennessee to face the Titans. And yeah, you know, sure, they got out of 0-2. They got their first win of the year on Monday night, but it's not as if 1-3 is any better. No, this is a huge opportunity for the Bengals to get back to 500 after a calamitous start to the season. We'll see how Joe Burrow looks against a Titans team that I have no idea what to do with. Just as soon as I start to think they're showing signs of life, a very inept performance against Cleveland last week. We'll see how they bounce back. To get into it, I am joined by one of the guys calling the game, Fox Sports' own Mark Schlereth, who's going to help me walk through every aspect of this Bengals at Titans matchup. All right, Mark, shocker of shockers. I would love to talk to you a little bit about Joe Burrow. And I'm curious, really, I I really love the perspective of a former player in, in an instance like this. You started more than 150 games in the NFL on the offensive line. I'm very confident that you had to manage injuries from week to week all the time. So I think what we're noticing with Joe Burrow is clearly that calf is not 100%. Not sure when it's going to be. As a former player, I know you didn't play quarterback, but what is the process of trying to manage an injury that maybe isn't keeping you off the field, but is, is obviously affecting the way you play? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing that you have to be able to do is, number one, you have to understand that in the NFL, you have to play hurt, but honestly, you have to play injured. And you have to play well hurt and injured. And that's a prerequisite. You want to last a long time in this league, you better find a way, uh, uh, figure out a way to play hurt and injured and play well in both of those capacities. So ultimately, what you have to end up doing is your body is this great it's just got, it's this great compensation mechanism. It's a great compensation machine. And when you're hurt, the rest of your body takes over to protect said injury. So what you have to start to understand and to realize is there's, for Joe Burrow, there may be certain throws I just am not comfortable making. Like I can't really dig down deep and really just unleash one. So now how do we as a staff, how do I as a guy manage that aspect of my game and so you start to think about you know the throws and you would think hey man maybe it's a really deep ball but deep balls come off of five step drops without a hitch so a deep ball is going to come down somewhere between you know 40 to 40 42 to 45 yards somewhere in there uh, or 38 to 43 yards somewhere right in there about two yards off the sideline if you're just throwing a go ball so that one is an easier throw than maybe one across the football field when you're on one hash near the boundary and you got to throw a deep out or a comeback to the opposite boundary. Like that's a throw that you really have to drive and it's got no trajectory to it, right? So you've got to just unleash and unload and really, you know, create um, centrifugal force through your feet, you know, rotational force through your feet and through your hips and obviously your calf becomes a part of that. So you might not be able to drive the football across the football field. So now we have to understand that as an offense, I've got to eliminate that particular route and that route combination that goes with that route out of our offense this week. So now you're pairing out plays that your quarterback can actually complete. If you look back, as I was digging through film, I saw him in the Baltimore game two weeks ago He was under center one time. So the entirety of the game plan is out of gun. 
And it was really funny because on on Monday night, he had thrown, and I haven't gone through the offensive tape, the coach's tape on Monday. I watched the game, but I haven't gone through the offensive coach's tape. So I will do that later on this evening. But they marveled at the fact that, you know, they thought he was going to run the football, and they ended up throwing it, I think, 49 times in that particular game. So it's all the quick throws. It's the underneath stuff. It's try to throw it and let a guy run or make miss, you know, break a tackle, whatever the case may be. Um, but ultimately, the other thing that happens to you in those situations is when you start your shotgun run program, right? So you're either near or far. Basically, the running back's either away from the tight end or to the tight end. So away from the tight end, he's far. And to- toward the tight end, he's near um, on the side of you. So what ends up happening is honestly probably 35 to 40% of your run game gets dumped. So you don't have any under center runs. And so, you know, again, like 45% or 40% of that gets dumped. And now I have none of the hard play action, run action, play action stuff off of that stuff. So you're walking into any game plan. This is how good Joe Burrow is. You're walking into that game plan with an injured quarterback and you've probably pared down 60% 60% of your offense, you've canned it. We can't run it. Yep. So you imagine now what you have to do from a coaching staff standpoint, what you have to do on defense. Hey, that defense, you know, the complementary nature of football, that defense got two, you know, goal line stops to force field goals for the Rams. If they don't get that, they lose that game. So it's it's a fascinating kind of dance they're doing right now going – we know we need Joe Burrow. We'd like to have him healthy. He's not. How do we manage him to hopefully not get him injured uh, any further with that calf? Which, and I know you just said you haven't seen the offensive tape. I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but even in a game where the Bengals only scored 19 points, it seemed like there were flashes of, of that rhythm and that ability that we're used to seeing. I mean, Jamar Chase gets targeted 15 times. I think he had... 12 for 130 or, or something mm-hmm. close to it. Yeah. Did you notice anything about what they're doing or do you have an idea about how they might adjust to that and say, hey, we can still have a fairly productive offense even if we got to deal with this? Yeah, there's no question. One, they've got such a great, uh, just a great continuity between those two guys, T, uh, T. Higgins as well. Um, but they've done, from a design standpoint, they've done some really cool things. From, you know, pulling Jamar Chase into the backfield and running an orbit on one side and a swing pass on the other side and getting everybody to flow one way, throw it the opposite way. They've had, you know, some great timing off an RPO game where, you know, they're flagging that ball deep in off the play action stuff and they're just trying to affect one side of the football field and they're running an individual route, usually like a drift or a glance, like that's a slant or an in-cutting route. And, you know, the timing of it is just play – Hold that, hold that defense for a second. Hold those linebackers for a second, the underneath coverage, and then whoom, hit them in the window. And so they've had some of that stuff where it's been on time and perfectly accurate where receivers can get yards after the catch. So it's really about throwing it underneath and seeing if you can develop not only churning first downs and completing passes, but can we get into a point where we pick somebody, get somebody on the run on a shallow cross, cross and make a six-yard throw into a 36-yard game. And so that's what you're seeing with them. Um, but it really is a masterful job from not only Joe Burrow managing himself, but from the coaching staff figuring out how we're going to create, you know, ex- some explosive plays, even though we've paired out, you know, 50% of our playbook or whatever it is. It's, it's a, I'm telling you, it's a significant amount, whatever it is. I'm sure, yeah. I mean, like I said, you can, you can see them trying to work a way around that. One last one on Joe, and I know you can get into trouble trying to compare injuries between people. I get that. No two people are the same. But mainly from your experience, this is something I'm always curious about. Like, when you're dealing with an injury, you're going to go and play 60 more snaps the next week, you know? And that, I mean, obviously, that seems like a hindrance toward recovery. Is it – do you have any memories of – like it's like an injury maybe you had at one point during a season that you managed to get taken care of over the course of the season, or is it really usually just about pain management in a situation like this? Um, most of the time, you know, we always used to call it a button and you know what you do with buttons? You push them. You press them. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you have an injury, it's a button that gets pressed. There, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. 
Um, I've managed some high ankle sprains, but I manage them um, in, in several different ways. You know, obviously the rehab during the week, but because of the position I played, I just got them shot up. And so, you know, we used to joke, you can't be afraid of the needle. Um, the problem with the problem with that is now I'm playing on a severely, you know, a high ankle sprain, which is excruciatingly painful. Um, and it's a funny thing because as you walk and you move around, there's no pain. But if you take like if this is your big toe and you touch it just on its side like that, the rotational force in the shin. Because what happens is those two bones compress and then they rip apart. And so it rips all the tissue between the two bones. It like rips it off the bones. So any rotational force, and I mean, it, it can be like a, the lightest tap in the world. I thought playing with it, I thought my leg was broken. I mean, I forced them to go get me another x-ray. Like I have a broken leg. There is no question in my mind. It is that painful. It is, it's excruciating. So I would get it shot up. The, the, the problem with getting it shot up is they can't just localize it there. It drains down into your foot. So by the time the game kicks off, I have no feeling in my foot. So I'm playing a game where my ankle and my shin, they start shooting it up from the top of your shin down, is completely numb, and my whole foot goes numb. And I played that way. I mean, I played, I played through the end of the season, through all the playoffs, through a Super Bowl, and through a Pro Bowl um, with no feeling in my foot. Now I can manage it, and part of managing injuries when you're when you're hurt and you're playing is my technique from the neck up. I have to be perfect. I can't put myself in a bad position because I can no longer recover. So technique wise, and understanding of what we're trying to do, it has to be perfect. Um, you make one mistake and you get off balance, you're beat. And so you have to really manage yourself in the concentration level that is required to play injured like that. Um, it just is exponentially more difficult than obviously when you're playing healthy. Um, now I had an advantage because I was never healthy. I, I every game I ever played, I was injured. Um, and so, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I probably had an advantage mentally that way because I knew what I had to do with my own body. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's it's really hard. Right? I just have a lot of respect for what Joe Burrow, it, the way he's playing right now, considering the fact that um, that thing is is certainly you know significantly injured. I think it's it's very important for those of us watching to keep these types of things in mind when you're watching an NFL game because I think everybody on the field is probably going through something similar. Speaking of offensive line play, banged up offensive linemen. That seems like a theme for the Tennessee Titans. Word just came out recently that Peter Skaronsky, the, the rookie offensive lineman for the Titans, has been missing because he needed an appendectomy. Is it as simple as saying that the Titans offense has been struggling for most of this season because that offensive line is so banged up? Or, or is there more to it, do you think? No, that's a, that's a large part of it. But I think... One of the things that ends up happening, and, and I tell people this all the time, um, nobody really knows what the offensive line does except the offensive line and the offensive line coach. Um, we are a secret mushroom society. Like they don't, Nobody really knows what we're doing, but we are doing it. And so it becomes very apparent, very easy to point fingers at the offensive line and say they suck. And they're not good. I mean, they're struggling. There's no question about it. But then you start looking at, at other aspects. And I told my crew this today because they're putting some, you know, they're putting some plays together. And as I dug through the last few weeks and, and really studied them, um, some of that is individually just getting whooped. Some of that is crowd noise and being in Cleveland against that defensive line. Some of it is horrendous coaching, in my opinion from a formational standpoint and some of the other things. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of what's being blamed on the offensive line is your inability to block people at the tight end position. So it all gets lumped in and people go, oh, you know, seven sacks, eight, whatever it is. Oh, the offensive line sucks. And it's a lot more than, it's a lot more than that. And there have been things that I have looked at schematically where I'm like, what you're the position you're putting those guys in 
is really a poor position to place somebody in. And so, you know, I always say this when it comes to football in general. Um, don't put a guy in a position to fail and then be surprised when he fails. Like you're the dumbass that put him in the position to fail. And so there's a lot of that when I watch Tennessee film that I'm like, well, I understand the concept, but what you're asking that guy to do, he can't do. The position you've put those two tight ends in and the splits they're taking are untenable to be able to actually block the beasts that you have in Cleveland, right? And so – yeah, I look at that stuff and I'm like, that's on you guys. That's not on them. That's on you guys as a coaching staff. So remember, they changed their offensive coordinator. They changed their offensive line coach. They've gotten rid of great players up front. I mean, the scaffolds of the world, the Nate, uh, uh, yeah, Roger Saffold, excuse me. Yeah, Saffold of the world. The and He's been gone for a while. But Nate uh, Sudfield, uh, I think Ben Jones retired. Or Nate Davis, excuse me. No, Nate Davis. Nate um, Davis. Taylor yeah. Lewan also gone. Taylor Lewan, yeah. And and Nate Davis was was one of my favorite players to watch. He's gone. So you you take guys that are really good that have been doing it for a while together, and then piecemeal an offensive line together that you overpaid in free agency because that's what free agency is. You're getting you know you're getting good players, and you're paying me, paying premium level dollars for good players. So you're taking a guy that's maybe a B minus and you're paying him A plus money. And then everybody looks at like, well, we spent all that money on them. Well, you spent A plus money on C plus B minus players. And so, you know, you better from a scheme standpoint, you better be able to save those guys to a degree. Otherwise, exactly what's happening in Tennessee is going to happen in Tennessee. You're going to get mauled. It's it hasn't been pretty for a solid chunk of the season. Although the, the thing that makes the Titans interesting, I mean, th- there's clearly enough there that they can play the Los Angeles Chargers and not only perform well on offense but have a really explosive day. So I think the chess match between Lou Anarumo, Cincinnati's defensive coordinator, and the Tennessee offense. Obviously, Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase are going to get the high headlines, but very mm-hmm. fascinating to see how that plays out. Mark Schler, I hope you and Adam Amin. Have a wonderful call. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. You got it, David. Take care, buddy. One more game that I want to take a close look at, and that is the Baltimore Ravens heading out to Cleveland to face the Browns in the early window of the afternoon. I just want to make sure we're giving proper love to the Cleveland Browns defense because with how much we're talking about Dallas, San Francisco, Buffalo, Philly, The Cleveland Browns are outplaying every single one of them through the first three weeks of the season. I mean, what they are doing with Jim Schwartz, the defensive coordinator, is absolutely incredible. I mentioned DVOA earlier in the show. They're a full 11 points better than the next best team defensively. Miles Garrett looking every bit of a defensive player of the year candidate. That that Cleveland front has just absolutely been devastating. They've, They've allowed 156 rushing yards this season. That's that's on the season. That's that's three games worth of rushing yards. Nothing doing. Derrick Henry couldn't get anything going in this game against the Browns last week. They've only allowed 18 points this year. Remember, they lost to Pittsburgh week two. Pittsburgh scores 26. 14 of them are takeaways from the Cleveland offense. J.J. Watt and Alex Highsmith outscored the Pittsburgh offense in that game. Cleveland is, has been devastating. Three points allowed to the Bengals. 12 points allowed to the Steelers, three points allowed to the Titans. And now we get to see them go against, we'll call it the closest thing to a full-blown offense. Because look, if you think I'm making excuses for the Bengals, I'm sorry, but the game's in a rainstorm with a Joe Burrow that we now have a lot of evidence that suggests is not 100%. So now we get a Lamar Jackson who is much closer to 100%, fully 100%. And a banged up Ravens offense that has still been able to move the ball throughout the season. I do. I wish the Ravens had more guys available. You know, two of their receivers down right now, Ronnie Stanley and Tyler Linderbaum, two of their major offensive linemen, both banged up. Does seem like they're getting a little bit of help on the defensive side of the ball. Marcus Williams and Kyle Hamilton, their star safeties, both returning to practice this week. So maybe the Ravens are kicking the injury bug a little bit. But it sure would be nice if this offense was at full bore so we could really see what Cleveland's going against. But 
If I'm a Browns fan, I'm not apologizing for that. This is the NFL. And slowing down Lamar Jackson should be plenty enough challenge in its own right. I saw Jim Schwartz said this week that they want to take the challenge to Lamar Jackson. Can't sit back and and let him have time to make plays. You've got to attack him. I can't wait to see what that looks like. Miles Garrett's been unblockable through three weeks of the season. I just think this is going to be some really peak AFC North football. The conditions look clear in Cleveland for the weekend, so not a not a rain game or a mud game or anything like that, but just a slobber knocker, a street fight. I don't know that either offense is in a place to take advantage of these defenses, but I I like what the Browns are doing on doing on defense that much that I think they can hold Lamar Jackson down. I think if Deshaun Watson and the Browns offense can help them get to 17, 20 points, I think they find a way to win this game. And the Browns at two and one in the division this early in the season with wins against the Bengals and the Ravens. I don't know how many people saw that coming, but that's how impressive this Browns defense is. I think they're capable of it. All right. Just one more item of business left on the agenda. We're about at the end of the show, but still 10 more games to preview. Don't worry. We're going to get to everything that's coming up in week four. We're just going to do it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Get you on your way. Get your weekend started the right way. We call this the hurry up. If you're new to the show, I'm going to take you through the rest of the week four slate in three and a half minutes, I would say or less, but I'll definitely probably go over. If you're watching the show, you'll see the timer. If you're listening on the podcast, you'll know what's going on by how much I struggle as we get toward the end of this thing. But if my wonderful producers can get me going with the timer, I see it. Let's start with Falcons at Jaguars, a London game. I said Jaguars. It's Jaguars. Jags 10th game in London and the first of two in a row. They're actually staying over there, which I think is a cool little wrinkle. Falcons, I'm telling you right now, the Jags are bad against the pass. They're giving up huge chunk plays against the pass. I know you're a run first team, but Desmond Ritter's going to have to step up and throw the ball this week. I'm not sure he does it, or at least I think Trevor Lawrence does it better. I got the Jags beating the Falcons by six. Rams at Colts. Sounds like Anthony Richardson's on track to play. Sounds like the Rams offensive line is going to be healthier. I love Anthony Richardson. No disrespect to Gardner Minshew, but Richardson just makes the Colts a must-watch team. If the offensive line's healthy, though, I still like the Rams. I think Matthew Stafford has looked so good when the protection's been good. I got the Rams 31-27 over the Colts. Buccaneers at Saints, good old-fashioned rock fight. Just one of the best rivalries in the league. Keep an eye on Mike Evans and Marshawn Lattimore. I'm nervous about the Saints offensive line, y'all. I don't know how you couldn't be with the way that they've played the first few weeks, but Alvin Kamara's back from suspension. Maybe he gives them a boost. I don't think this is going to be a game with a lot of points either way. Give me the Saints 16 to 12 in a game similar to their week one game against the Titans. I'll take New Orleans in a tight one. Vikings at Panthers. Not going to overthink this. I think the Vikings are a good team, or at the very least, they're better than 0-3 suggests. Kirk Cousins quietly having a really good season, in my opinion. I think they put the Panthers away 28-17 on the road. Broncos at Bears. There's no way the NFL schedule makers knew they were making a number one pick bowl this early in the season, but that's what it feels like. Two teams vying for the number one overall pick. The difference is it kind of feels like Bears fans are already okay with fantasizing about what they're going to do with their pick and with Carolina's pick, whereas if Denver winds, finds a way to lose this game, it's going to be so uncomfortable for Sean Payton. They weren't supposed to be this bad. I think they stave off that talk for another week. I got the Broncos 2016 over the Bears. Steelers at Texans, I want to back C.J. Stroud so badly. I really do. I, he's playing amazing. 900 passing yards through three weeks. They played without an offensive line against Jacksonville, and they were fine, but this Steelers front is different. I think TJ Watt and Alex Highsmith are going to feast. I think the Steelers win a close one. I'm sorry, CJ Stroud. I'm sad that I'm not believing in you right now, but I do think that Steelers defense can take advantage. Raiders, Chargers, I don't know why. The Chargers don't have home field advantage. They don't have a good defense. But things look worse for the Raiders right now. I think Devontae Adams has a huge day, but the Chargers win 31-27 here in L.A. Cardinals, Niners, good on the Cardinals for beating the Cowboys, but the problem is now they're not sneaking up on anybody. Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw are not going to be surprised by that Cardinals run game. I think the Niners win big. I don't think it's that hard for them. They win by 17 or so points. Chiefs at Jets. 
Okay, look, the only question is how hard are the Jets going to make this on the Chiefs offense? And how many times are we going to see shots of Taylor Swift in the crowd? I can see the Jets being stubborn and making this difficult, kind of like they did against the Cowboys. But the Chiefs are winning this game by three scores. I've got 34-13. It's going to be something like that. Let's wrap it up with Monday Night Football. Giants are at home. I just think the Seahawks are on track, and I don't think New York is. Give me Geno Smith getting a road win in the building he knows so well. I don't know. We'll say Seahawks by eight. I'm a little bit over. I do not care. You try to do 10 games in three and a half minutes. That does it for the week four preview. Guys, this was a blast. What's going to be more fun is recapping it all on Monday. We will see you then. Go find us. Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Tell your church group about us. Talk to us and whoever you see in the grocery store. Mention the show. Cannot wait to catch up with y'all on Monday as we recap all the games. I will see y'all soon. 